We're going to come to open up God's Word together now. So if you've got a Bible nearby, do turn to... Um, we've been going through a series in, uh, in two kings, um, but we're going to read a short section uh, from one kings before we dive into our passage this morning. So one kings 19, 15 to 17, we're going to read a short uh, section there, and then we're going to turn to our reading for this morning, two kings chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, it's going to come up on the screen as well. So 1 Kings 19, 15 to 17. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel, king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat from Abel Mahalo, to succeed you as prophets. Jehu will put to death anyone who escaped the sword of Hazel, and Elisha will put to death anyone who, es- who escaped the sword of Jehu. Now let's turn to 2 Kings, just over the page. 2 Kings chapter 2. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets of Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, Elisha, the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak rolled it up and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You've asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet, If you see me when I'm taken from you, it'll be yours. Otherwise, it will not. As they're walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father. The chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had had fallen from him 
and went back and stood at the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. The company of the prophets from Jericho were watching. said, the spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Look, they said, we, your servants, have 50 able men. Let them go and look after your master. Perhaps the spirit of the Lord has picked him up and set him down on some mountain or in some valley. No, Elisha replied, do not send them. But they persisted until he was too embarrassed to refuse. So he said, send them. And they sent 50 men who searched for three days but did not find him. And when they returned to Elisha, who was staying in Jericho, he said to them, didn't I tell you not to go? The people of the city said to Elisha, look, our lords, this town is well situated, as you can see, but the water is bad and the land is unproductive. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then they went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, this is what the Lord says. I've healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained pure to this day, according to the words Elisha had spoken. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Boldy, they said. Get out of here, Boldy. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. Well, Dan's going to come and explain that to us in just a moment, but let's pray before he does so. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your words. Thank you that it is true, that it is powerful. And Lords, we thank you that we get to open it and read it and have it explained to us this morning. And Lord, I pray for Dan as he comes and shares God's word with us, as he explains it. Lord, I pray you'd give him clarity. Lord, I pray you'd give us ears uh, and to listen and hearts um, to hear your voice. Um, Lord, we ask that you'd be at work uh, now as your word is explained. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, well, good morning, everyone. Lovely to see you all. Hope you're all doing well. Well, do keep your Bibles open in front of you, if you do have them, as we look at that quite extraordinary chapter uh, we're looking at this morning. I don't know whether any of you have been uh, able to watch any of the Olympics at the moment. It's great that they're on in the moment. Maybe, you know, we've been watching a bit of skateboarding at 2 a.m., how about that? It's great, isn't it? If you can't sleep, you can just whack on the telly, you know, watch a bit of skateboards, you know, a bit of three-on-three basketball. That's quite exciting, isn't it? Have you ever seen that? It's great. Uh, but talking of Olympics, I want to cast your minds back nine years ago now to London 2012. Uh, wasn't that a great occasion? Do you remember that? Maybe you managed to go up there and uh, you managed to, to see some of the events when it was being hosted up in the capital. I mean, it had everything, didn't it? But I, I wonder whether you can remember the opening ceremony uh, to London 2012. Um, 
I mean, that had everything too, when you think about it. But as I was reflecting on the opening ceremony of London 2012, I, I sort of thought about this question. Have you ever wondered what that ceremony must have looked like to someone who didn't live in the UK? I mean, can you, I mean, I, I, we live in the UK, we sort of, you know, we know what was going on, but can you imagine what that looked like to someone who wasn't from the UK? You had, I mean, it must have looked absolutely bonkers. You had, you had Johnny English playing in the orchestra. Uh, you had the Queen jumping out of a helicopter. Apparently the humour even went down to the details where uh, when Fiji were walking out, we decided to play the Bee Gees as their out entrance music because we thought, that's funny, isn't it? Fiji sounds a lot like Bee Gees. I will make a bit of a joke about that and we'll make them walk out to it. I mean, can you imagine what it looks like to people looking in at the opening ceremony? Uh, one American newspaper called it the world's biggest inside joke. And they even said that some of the, the humor just went way over the heads of other nations looking in. Uh, why is that? Uh, why was that? Because there was a cultural context that most of the world had no experience of living in. There were things that were being pointed back to that people didn't know informed our present. There was a culture people just didn't live in. And so lots of these things that were going on in the ceremony all about British culture, well, kind of went all over their heads. And I want to say this morning that when it comes to reading the Bible, and when it comes to understanding Jesus himself, it can feel a bit similar. It can feel like someone from abroad watching at the London opening ceremony, certainly not with the inside jokes or the silly ske sketches, but every time we open up the Bible, we are stepping into a culture that we have not lived in, that it's not our own. And often the Bible is pointing us back to things that have happened before that we just don't know because we haven't lived in that culture. We haven't grown up with the stories. And so some of that stuff, it just goes over the head because we just can't see it. We're like foreigners looking in at an opening ceremony, like London 2012 often. And our passage this morning it is going to help us understand Jesus better. That's my real aim this morning. It's going to help us understand Jesus better. In fact, Jesus says that in order to understand him, we need to know this story that we just had read out in Two Kings. And we might be thinking this morning, well, how does parting rivers and salt and chariots and bears have anything to do with Jesus? Well, trust me at the moment, it does. <laughs> And hopefully, as we'll go through this morning, we'll see how it does point us to Jesus. A bit like, just having the back of your minds, it's like looking at an opening ceremony if you live abroad. There's just stuff. That's the sort of mindset we're going into here. And yet, it might be this morning that we're, at this point, we're tempted to drift off. If this passage is all about understanding Jesus better, we might be saying, well, what does that have to do with me? Well, as we'll see this morning, knowing how this points to Jesus has a huge implication in how each of us respond to him. 
And also, if we are a Christian already maybe this morning, if we already follow Jesus, then actually knowing more about how the Bible points to Jesus and who Jesus says he is, will actually help us when it comes to talking to others about him. If you're anything like me, part of the reason, other than it can just be a really scary thing at times to do to talk to other people about our faith, part of the reason why we can be so reluctant to talk to other people about Jesus is because, quite frankly, we don't feel we know Jesus as well as we should. And I hope this morning that this passage helps us to see more of what Jesus is wanting us to know about him and that we know him better and that helps us in our lives, walking with him and talking about him too. Well, this morning, you're probably expecting me at this point to say, I've got three points and this is the first one. But in fact, I'm not. In fact, I haven't got any points. Shocker. Is this even a sermon? It is, I hope. But just in terms of clarity and a bit of direction as we move forward this morning, just so you know where I'm heading, first off, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage that we, we look, because probably we're all here and we are wondering what on earth is going on in this extraordinary chapter. Uh, we'd probably like to know what's going on. And then after we do that, what we're going to do is we're going to see what this is all pointing us to. What's the big thing this is pointing us to? And then we'll end where our passage ends this morning. And what I'm, wanna, what I'm gonna call a tale of two cities. A tale of two cities. And what this all means for us this morning. So that's where we're heading. But let us get into this passage because it is extraordinary, isn't it? Now what our passage is, in essence, is a handover. It is a handover, and, and we might, maybe this morning, we might have had experience ourselves of a handover of sorts. We might have maybe retired from a job, and we've had to hand it over to someone else who was new, or maybe we were leaving something, and we had to get everything in place in order for the new person to come in, and we kind of know the deal of what happens when a handover has to take place. Maybe it didn't have the whirlwinds and the chariots, but, you know, it was still a handover, our passage this morning is a handover between Elijah, God's prophet, someone who spoke God's word to the people, to the next in line, to the next prophet, Elisha. Now this morning, just to say, Elijah, Elisha, if I confuse the two, I'm very sorry. They're very easy names to confuse, Elijah and Elisha, but Elijah hands over to Elisha. And you might have noticed as you read through that passage that there seems to be quite a strange relationship between them both. I mean, they both seem really close, but, but they also seem really distant as well. And there's this repeated narrative at the start in verses 2 to 6 of Elijah saying, Look, Elisha, you stay here whilst I go to this place. And then he says that again and again and again. And then Eli Elisha repeats and responds saying the exact same thing. He says, I'm never going to leave you. Uh, Elijah just seems like he can't shake him off. And maybe we've had experience of, of people that we'd like to just move on from, but they're like, I'm never going to leave you ever. And that's kind of Elisha. And it seems like when you read through that Elijah is hesitant about handing over to Elisha. It's like he wants to delay the handover as much as he can. 
And when we're reading this through, we're thinking, well, why is that? Why is he delaying this? Well, we might say this morning, maybe if we've had to hand something over, it's quite common for when people get to the point where they're wanting to hand things over, that people can be quite reluctant to do that. It can be human nature, I guess, to not want to hand things over. But there might be something else here. You see, we had our first reading, James read out from 1 Kings chapter 19, and that was the first time we're introduced to Elisha. And when we read through that, if you flick back even to 1 Kings 19, where we had that first passage, if you read it, I'll read it again. Elisha, he's introduced to us as an assassin. Do you notice that? I'll read it again. It says, Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. It's very clear in Kings who Elisha is. After Elijah's repeated attempts, constantly going to the people to ask them to turn around, to reject the things that they were worshipping, to turn back to God, but without success, it's very clear what's coming next. God is now bringing Elisha, the assassin. God's words bringing judgment. And Elisha, Elijah knows that. After him, God said he would bring judgment. He knows what Elisha signifies. Anyone who's left, Elisha is going to put to death. He's an assassin. That's what King shows us. And you get that sense from Elijah that he's trying to hold off. And yet in verse 9 of our passage, Elijah knows he can't wait any longer. And before he goes, he asks Elisha what he wants. Almost as a, a little present, as a leaving gift, you could say. And in verse 9, Elisha says, Well, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. A double portion of your spirit isn't Elisha asking himself to be doubly as strong or be able to do, you know, double the, the amount of things that Elijah could do. But a double portion is the older son's inheritance. The older son received two-thirds of the inheritance back then. And so what he's asking is that he wants to be recognized as the inheritor of Elijah's ministry. He wants to be seen as Elijah's successor. And in verse 10, well, Elijah kind of goes, okay, but I'm going to lay down a condition. I'm going to lay down a test for you to see. And it's only in verse 10, if you see, if Elisha manages to see Elijah being taken up into heaven that what Elisha asks will be given to him. It's only if he sees that it will be given to him. And when you think about it, that's a really good test, isn't it? If you're going to become a prophet. Because a prophet's job was literally to see things, visions, and to speak God's word to people. And so if Elisha manages to see this take place, well, that's a pretty good confirmation, isn't it? that he is the man for the job. He really is the next prophet. And so afterwards, well, that exactly happens. Elisha sees Elijah being taken up in the whirlwind, and Elisha is left with just his cloak as a token of remembrance. And then in the story, we see that these 50 prophets then gather around 
and they ask Elisha whether they could almost send out a, a search and rescue party. I think that's the best way of describing it, to go and see if they can find Elijah. Maybe God's plonked him on a mountain somewhere and he needs a bit of rescuing. That's the kind of vibe here. And so they send out these 50 men. Elisha goes, you don't need to go. They go anyway. They spend three days walking around and they're going all around. Uh, they, they realize they've made a mistake. They come back to Elijah, Elisha, sorry, and Elisha says, didn't I tell you not to go? Which I think is the Bible's polite way of, I told you so. I told you. you can imagine it, can't you? Elisha's, he's like, you absolute idiots. Come on, like you spent three days walking around. I told you not to go. What is the point? A three-day hopeless search and rescue mission. The point is, Elisha's the man now. Elijah's gone. Elisha is now God's word to the people. They don't need to go to Elijah to find God's word. God's word hasn't gone missing. God's word is now in Elisha. He says, you didn't need to do that. I'm here. The handover, you could say, has been complete. The contract has been signed. And then in our story, and in our passage this morning... It ends with the tale of two cities, Jericho and Bethel. And we're going to come to that. We're going to pause there. We're going to come back and we're going to see that at the end. But in our essence, our passage is showing us the handover between Elijah and Elisha. Now that brings us to the second thing because we're like, oh yeah, that's great, great. There's a handover. But what is that all pointing us to this morning? What is this pointing us towards now, I'm going to ask everyone to stay with me here because I realize this is a, it's a long passage and we, we know it's a lot of words and, you know, I'm tempted to drift off, you know, and, but I want you to stay with me because what this points us to, I think is really cool. Genuine, I think this is so cool in the way that God has choreographed history to make a point in what this is pointing us to. You see, this is both pointing us backwards and it's pointing us forwards. It's pointing us backwards and it's pointing us forwards. And we're going to see, hopefully, a diagram of what this means as we go through that will hopefully make sense. And I realized this morning that maybe if we're watching church for the first time on the live stream, it's so great that you're doing this. Or maybe we're here and it's our first time and maybe we're not as familiar with the Bible as, as, as maybe those who have been here for years and years and years. And I really want to say that there'll be a lot of names and a lot of stories that we might just go, I don't know what that is. But stay with me. I, I, know, I know some of it might just go, but stay with me. And if you get lost, the main point is this. Elisha points us to Jesus. Elisha points us to Jesus. That's the main point if you want to summarize it all. You see, what this is pointing us to, in the Bible, there are three great handovers. Three great handovers. There is a handover right at the start of the Bible, in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, between Moses, very famous biblical figure, and his successor, Joshua. 
Moses hands over to Joshua. That's the first great handover. And then many hundreds of years later, we then get the second great handover in the Bible. That's our passage this morning, when Elijah hands over to Elisha. And then, hundreds of years after that, we get the third and the final great handover in the Bible. John the Baptist, who hands over to Jesus. Three great handovers. Moses, Joshua, Elijah, Elisha, John the Baptist, Jesus. And there is a connection between all of them that hopefully we're going to see. You see, Elijah points us backwards to Moses. He's very much like Moses. Did you notice that in our passage? I mean, what is Moses' most famous miracle? It would be probably parting the Red Sea, right? When he sort of holds his staff out and the the waves go right there and they walk straight through. That's Moses' most famous thing. And do you notice that's what Elijah replicates in verse 8? Do you see that in our passage? It's a Moses miracle. He parts water. It's like, I'm Moses. That's what he's trying to say here. He's pointing us back to that. But Elijah also points us forward to John the Baptist. How do we know that? That's a bit of a crazy connection. How do we know he points us forward? Well, we know that because they both wear the same outfit. If you were here last week, we started our series in 2 Kings, and you might have noticed in chapter 1 of 2 Kings, verse 8, Elijah is described, he had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. He's wearing a very distinct outfit, isn't he? And in Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, in the gospel accounts all the way forward, when we first get introduced to John the Baptist, what is he wearing? We're introduced, it says that John's clothes were made of camel's hair. And he had a leather belt around his waist. It's like John's walked into the local costume shop and he's gone up to the manager and he said, yep, can I have your best Elijah costume? He's wearing the same outfit. But also he points forward because Elijah's ministry is the same as John's ministry. Elijah throughout 1 Kings was one constantly calling the people of Israel to repent. He says, repent, turn around, start to worship the true God. And when we're introduced to John, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, what is the first thing that we hear John say? He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. They both have the same message. In Mark chapter 9, someone come and asks Jesus, he asks the question, why do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first. That is, someone asked Jesus, why do people say that Elijah's got to come back before the Messiah, God's King, comes? And Jesus says, Elijah has come back. And he's talking about John the Baptist. Jesus' Elijah was John the Baptist. And then, even it gets to the point of the details that Elijah points forward to John the Baptist, even to the detail of both having queens that wanted to kill them. In 1 Kings, Elijah is constantly pursued by Jezebel, King Ahab's wife, and she wants to kill him. 
She wants, to, she wants him dead. And when we meet John the Baptist in the Gospels, he has the same women problem. He has Herodias, Herod's wife, who wants to kill him too. And in fact, she does. She has John executed for her pleasure. Do we see how Elijah points us forward to John the Baptist? But the same thing happens on the other side of the column. Stay with me. I promise this is going to get better. We're going to get to Jesus here. Elisha, he points us backwards too. He points us backwards to Moses' successor, Joshua. And how do we know that? Well, when Joshua, when he takes over and he enters into the promised land that God had wanted to give them, well, they have to cross the River Jordan. And Joshua replicates the water parting miracle. He parts the River Jordan for the people to walk through. He replicates what Moses did just a few years before. And do you notice in our passage that Elisha, as soon as Elijah has gone, performs the same water parting miracle at the River Jordan. It's like he's doing what Joshua did when Moses went. They do the same water party miracle. And it even points us back in the same point that when Joshua crosses the river and they get into the land, the first city that Joshua comes to is the city of Jericho. And we might have heard a song about it or two. And Joshua, they march around the walls, they march around until the, wa- the city is totally flattened. But the first city they come to is Jericho. And in our passage in 2 Kings, do you notice what town, what city Elisha chooses to go to first? He goes to Jericho, the same town that Joshua went to. It points us back to Joshua, even to the point that they both have the same name. Joshua means the Lord saves, Elisha means God saves, and that points us And that helps us in how it points us forward to Jesus. Because Jesus has the same name as all of them. They all mean God saves. Just a different variation. Joshua, Elisha, Jesus. The same name. God saves. Because Elisha does point us forward to Jesus. And he points us forward to Jesus in the same miracles that they do. Elisha in two kings, we're going to see, is going to do a load of miracles. And one of the miracles is that Elisha will raise a Shunammite family's son back to life. He'll raise him back to life. And that is exactly what we see Jesus do. Jesus, he goes and he finds a widow's son that has died. And he raises the son back to life. And it gets even more crazy than this. They do it in the same place. Jesus does it in Nain, and that is the same city that Elisha will do it in 2 Kings. Another miracle, Elisha will see in 2 Kings chapter 4, he will multiply bread to feed 100 people with just a few bits of bread. And that's the exact same thing that Jesus does. When he comes, he does it on 50 times the scale. He takes just a few loaves and he feeds 5,000 people with it. The point, he's Elisha. 
Elisha's pointing us forward to Jesus. Jesus is pointing us back to Elisha. It even gets to this detail, right? That when Elisha receives the Spirit in our passage, where does he receive it? In the River Jordan. And when Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist and the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, it says, where does this all happen? In the River Jordan, the same place that Elisha received his anointing. There's lots of things, isn't there? Elijah points us back to Moses and forward to John the Baptist. Elisha points us backwards to Joshua and forward to Jesus. Everyone points to everyone. It's all very simple, isn't it? We've all got it. No. I know this may be, that might have just been a delve of information. Hopefully, that diagram helps in knowing how it all works together. Now, you might think this morning, yeah, yeah, damn, okay, you said it was cool, but yeah, it's kind of cool, but, you know, sure. What does this mean? That's really nice to know. It's nice to know how the Bible fits together. It's nice to know how God has choreographed all of these details through the span of history. But what does this mean? What does this mean for me? Well, with that foundation in place that we've got, that's where I want to leave us with this morning. Because no doubt when this passage was being read, there was one bit that stood out more than anything. And that was the last bit, right? The tale of two cities, the deadly water being healed in Jericho and the deadly bears being loosed in Bethel. And if I asked you this morning, which story is more shocking to you, what would you say? I'm guessing, like me, you'd probably say the bears, right? I mean, talk about sensitive. Gets called a baldy and calls down curses. That's the shocking part, isn't it? But if we read through 1 and 2 Kings, actually the shocking story is Elisha healing the water in Jericho. People dying isn't a shock. We know that earlier, didn't we? Elisha, he's the assassin. We are expecting Elisha to be killing people. That is the one thing we know about Elisha. That's not the shock. The shock is that the judge rescues people. The judge that we thought was going to kill people actually saves some people. That's the shock. And even more shocking, doubly shocking, we're not expecting God to be saving people in Jericho of all places. Jericho, as we heard previously, points us back to Joshua When Joshua walked around and he destroyed the city, and when the city was destroyed, there was a curse placed on the city of Jericho. And the curse was this city, if it was ever to be rebuilt, would be rebuilt at the cost of the youngest son of the person who built it. That was the curse. And in 1 Kings, we see that during the reign of King Ahab, the city's rebuilt. They rebuild it anyway at the cost of the youngest son. Jericho 
is a cursed city, a symbol of defiance against God's word. And yet, it's a city that Elisha goes to and brings a rescue. And that's why I've named the, the city Jerich Hope. It was a long week. Please do bear with me. It was that's the best I could come up with. Jerich Hope. That's what I want us to see when we look at Jericho. Jerich Hope, because it points us this morning to something truly amazing, that God's grace, God's love can be found in the most unlikely place and to the most unlikely people. We've seen that Elisha points us forward to Jesus. And do you know, Jesus himself walked into Jericho. And when he went into Jericho, he met a man there, a tax collector, the chief tax collector called Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, he is a dark character. He's not just a little man, really sweet and innocent. He is an exploiter. He is a traitor. He is a manipulator. He used to go and he used to shred families to bits. He would cast people out of their homes, family and children. He is not a nice character. He is a dark character. And Jesus spots Zacchaeus and he says, I'm going to come round to your house for some dinner. And everyone knows who Zacchaeus is. In fact, they say, they, they say he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. And yet the encounter ends by Jesus saying, today, salvation has come to this house. In Jericho, Jesus brings a rescue. Because he says, the Son of Man, that's the name that Jesus uses for himself, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And do you know God's grace today, <laughs> this is the beautiful part, God's grace today still comes to the most unlikely places and to the most unlikely people. People who thought that they'd blown it. People who thought there is no way that God could ever love them in a million years. People who sit there helplessly wondering how they are ever going to stand before God and, and enter heaven one day because of the things that they've done. Do you know, Jericho is for those people. God's grace comes to unlikely places and to unlikely people. And I want us to be shocked by God's grace this morning. Jericho is Jerich hope. That's what I want us to go with. When we look at Jericho, when we read Jericho, we think there is hope. There is a rescue that is brought when we're not expecting it. Because this morning we look to the greater Elisha, Jesus, who brings us this morning a salvation, a rescue from death that is far greater than the story that we read in two kings. Jesus paid that rescue at the price of his own life. He gave himself for you so that our rejection of God's words might be punished in our place. And he was raised from death so that we might live and not have to experience death forever. And this grace in Jesus is something that absolutely anyone this morning can receive. And that might be a shock for us to hear. We might not truly believe it. When we think about God, we just think about his judgment. But Jericho points us to hope. That God shocks us with his grace. And in the most unlikely place... He brings a rescue. That is exactly what Jesus does 
that is still true today. And yet, it actually on the flip side, it might not be God's grace that shocks us this morning. That actually might not be to us the shocking part. It might be God's judgment that's the shocking part. You know, we might say, I remember Henrik Hein, the poet, he once said in French, Deu me pardonnerai, c'est son métier. That was a bit of a rubbish. I did German at school. Which says, God will forgive me. It's his job. We might think that actually God's grace is inevitable, isn't it? God's grace isn't the shocking part. God's judgment is. Well, this morning, is God's grace inevitable? Well, this morning, we can't ignore the bears, can we? If Jericho was Jericho, then what we get at the end is lethal Bethel. Because it's not just a funny joke, get lost, baldy. It's much more sinister than that. This is Bethel, the place where the golden calf was set up for people to worship. They've rejected God, they hate his word, and when they hear Elisha's coming, they make every effort to go out and to verbally reject him too. And the message is clear. Elisha still brings God's judgment, even though he brings God's grace. The bears demonstrate that. And that goes with Jesus too this morning. He brings a rescue. He brings grace that you cannot imagine. But if rejected, the Bible is equally clear that he will bring judgment to every place he is rejected. I wonder this morning, the question that we're left with is what city are we in this morning? Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we recognize that you are the one that the whole Bible is pointing us towards. And we pray that you would help us to look to you. Look to you as our Savior. Look to you as our our King. And Lord, we pray that we would not reject you. For we know your amazing grace that you have given to us. And we pray that in your words, you would shock us with your grace. You'd help us to understand that grace is something that is not automatically received. It is not something we deserve, and yet it's something you offer anyway. We pray that we would each look to Jericho as Jericho. We would see the grace that you have for each one of us. But Lord, would you leave us with the real warning of the bears, knowing, Lord Jesus, that just like Elijah, judge those who rejected your word. We know you too, Lord Jesus, are a mighty and powerful king, holy and just, and you will bring judgment on those who reject your word too. We pray that we may each find your grace this morning. Amen.